0: I'm Scott Masson here with Paideia today with my colleague, uh, Dr. Bill Friesen. Today for our podcast, uh, we're going to be switching gears a little bit and moving towards a rather different form of literature than those that we've discussed before. We're looking at the Anglo-Saxon poem Beowulf, and I'll hand it over to Dr. Friesen here and let him do a little reading for us, I believe.
1: Yes, I've got the introduction to Beowulf. Uh, as you know, having looked at epics already, they tend not to be coy about what they're going to be talking about right at the beginning of the poem, so there's no enigma about it. But I'm going to give it to you in Old English initially, and then maybe I'll give you a translation here. Ha! Chvat! Uh, Wey jardene en jardai om thay ood hu fremadon, oft, SHULD schäfing, scheathana, threatham, moine, ja, maithum, me old, settle, oft, teach, ed, so, de, yorlas, süden, erest, wert fershaft, funden, he, thas, frofra, ja, weox, under, wolknum, weort, thach, o, dat, him, ach, THARRA thara, im, rada, hiren, schulde, gomben, GILDEN, THAT was, good, TUNING. Those are the first 14 lines of Beowulf. And of course, if you don't know that much about the history of the English language, and I told you that was Old English, you might've expected that I would begin talking in something that sounded vaguely Shakespearean, but of course-
0: Uh, Or Chaucerian, yeah.
1: Or Chaucerian at best, but no Old English is effectively to the modern listener uh, an entirely foreign language.
0: Interestingly, Bill, uh, I I read it when I was in Germany, when I was at that point fluent in German, and I found it, I, I could understand it, actually, from German with with a few helps uh in terms of words and so forth so for germans it's easier but i would say it's still it's still not the equivalent of reading chaucer it's it's foreign language
1: yeah no uh, these are radically different languages between old english middle english shakespearean english and modern english i'll come back i'll talk about that very briefly later on uh but like you I had a bit of a background, I mean, nowhere close to the levels of German that that you studied. You're actually a registered uh, translator of German uh, with uh, the German (laughs) government. Whereas my knowledge of German is much more that of a dilettante. But nevertheless, I I was studying German at the time that I was also studying Old English. And moreover, I was taught Old English by a, quite frankly, very spooky Jesuit Uh, individual one of the most humorless men I've ever met in fact anybody who specializes in dead languages tends to be socially struggling let's say (laughs) anyway uh, and a a, along with uh, teaching us old English he uh, taught us uh, a lot of the basics of uh, etymology and morphology and things like this which was invaluable alongside the German so if you knew how language evolved and you knew your German and you knew your old English, things would connect again and again. And so you, let's look at the first line there. Hwat, there's a a word that has uh, evolved uh, after that into hark. That's what it becomes. It means listen up. So essentially, this is the poet basically banging on the table saying, Listen, the tale is beginning, shut up. Uh, we is we. Yardena. Yar is uh, the Germanic word, the ancient Germanic word for spear. And it's also the root of the name Gary. So if you run into a Gary, Gary is a spear. (laughs) Uh, Dana is, of course, related to the Danes. Spear Danes. In, the preposition is the same as it always was. Yar uh, is year. Uh, Dayum is day. Days of yore is usually how we translate that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. So very briefly, let me give you also a uh an english translation uh i've translated this myself but i'm not quite so pompous as to foist that upon you uh i prefer you and i were discussing this before the podcast i prefer literal translations to what they call sense for sense translations uh literal tra- literal translations i believe uh, involve a lot more integrity a lot more rigor and uh, they're not so much about the translator. A lot, of, a lot of times when I read Sense for Sense translations, the translator implies his or her meaning upon the text and his or her yeah. worldview upon the text. That's fine and good. If I want to talk to the translator, I'll talk to the translator in a conversation over coffee, but I, I, you know, I don't want it in the translated form. Uh, rather, what I want is the voice of a long dead author yeah. and his worldview. So this is the one that typically I, I go to. This is John Porter's literal translation. It's cheap. Right. It's it's not very well known, sadly. Whereas I,
0: I use the uh, <clears throat> Seamus Heaney translation in my yeah, classes.
1: I have that right here as well. Yeah. This is the Seamus Heaney with the chain mailed guy on the front. It's not bad. Actually. No, it's pretty good. It's 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 pretty solid. Uh, so Heaney uh, spent a long time studying Old English simply in order to produce his own. A poetic form of it, but the bottom line is: uh, anytime kudos, I have kudos
0: it, to him for that. Uh, yeah, so, it's a yeah. lot of
1: discipline, and I, I love that. But anyway, I'll give you those so, those same 14 lines here that I just read you, but now translated by Porter. What we spear Danes in your days, tribe kings' glory heard, how the prince's courage accomplished, oft shield-shaved son from the enemy's bands from many tribes mead benches seized terrorized earls since first he was destitute found. He, its relief knew, grew under skies in honor's throve until to him each neighbor over the whale road must submit, must, tribute yield. That was a good king. So that's what you encounter right at the beginning of Beowulf. Now the reason Beowulf is such a big deal in English studies and it's not being taught in a lot of universities anymore. In fact, I would say probably minimum Three quarters of the large universities in the Western world nowadays no longer teach Beowulf at all. You're lucky to encounter Chaucer, who's hundreds of years later uh, and coming from a completely different worldview. The reason Beowulf, I would argue, is kind of a big deal, is because it is the earliest major work in English that has survived down to us. This is going right down to the tap roots of what has survived. You can't get any further back. As uh, the Iliad in the West is the oldest thing we have make an argument there about the Epic of Gilgamesh, I suppose. But in Northwestern cultures, this is as old as it gets. And it is also an absolute masterwork. And we're going to come back. We'll talk about that maybe yeah. today, maybe in a later podcast. Um, but the sheer richness of the text itself is difficult to overemphasize as it is with uh, the Aeneid, uh, the Odyssey, the Iliad and so on. It. It is again one of these texts. It makes uh, allusions and references to other great epics. It existed in a great matrix of Germanic epics, overwhelmingly which have now been lost, sadly, but this is the way it goes. Now we also need to make a little bit of a distinction when it comes to medieval texts in particular. I suppose this would be the case with ancient texts as well. Between the date of the composition on the one hand and the date of the manuscript on the other, scholars are still ferociously debating the date when this was composed. Uh, we've got only one datable element in it. I'll talk about that in just a second briefly. But the dates usually that we have for composition run anywhere from as early as 700 AD to as late as 1020 AD. That's a
0: pretty big range.
1: Yes, yeah, a massive range is basically in the entire English Anglo-Saxon period.
0: It's basically scholars throwing their hands up saying...
1: Yeah, we have no clue. My inclination is that it is earlier rather than later but I'm not a manuscript specialist. I'm also not a language specialist in spite of what some people might think. But I will say that, yeah, I, I tend to, uh, to go back to the earlier dates, uh, thinking somewhere around 750 or so. It seems plausible, but that's just my best guess. And that's all I've got, I guess. Yeah. Uh, we do know, however, much more with much more certainty when the manuscript was written. And that's around 1010, uh, 10, uh, essentially.
0: Before the Norman invasion.
1: Correct. Norman Invasion, of course, is 1066, the famous, or if you're me, infamous Battle of Hastings. Yeah. And it was collected by these humanists that you and I talked about. Uh, in this case here, a Robert Bruce Cotton uh, was scouring libraries and archives all over England and northwestern Europe to see what he could recover of English literary inheritance. And this is one of the texts that he located. It's, uh, he put it or he found it in something called the Noel Codex which is a collection of four different works, including Beowulf. And what makes that codex interesting is the fact that all the uh, pieces of literature in there regard monsters.
0: What what is a codex bill for the sake of our listeners?
1: Yeah. It's simply a collection of manuscripts. So you'll find, you know, it's uh, usually you got a hard binding on either side uh, made out of wood, oftentimes coated in leather. Um, usually they try to use beech trees for that, which is where we get our word book from, by the way, betch is the old English B E C. And then you've got vellum inside for the the manuscripts themselves made out of sheep's uh, skins, or if you're poor goat skins. Uh, So it takes a lot of dead sheep to make a book. And uh, it, it also contributes very significantly to the cost of a book. Uh, Oxford Library in the Middle Ages uh, was one of the biggest libraries in the European world and had only 13,000 texts in it. And to a, a modern library, that's laughable. But yeah. back then it was a wonder. And yeah. this is one of the reasons the making of a book was just exorbitant. Oh my. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Uh, we nearly lost it. Robert Cotton he's he located it and he brought it together in his library, the Cotton Library. Uh, which he decided he would uh, set up in a place called the Ash Burnham House. And you'll never guess what happened to the Ash Burnham House.
0: <laughs> I'll never guess, Bill. Tell me what happened to the Ash. That's like a punchline to a joke what happened at the ash burnham house bill
1: yeah (laughs) it caught on fire like everything (laughs) caught on fire back then and it went up in flames and uh some library this was back when librarians were truly heroic and they ran in there and they were literally grabbing armloads of burning books and hurled them out of the window (laughs) into the street (laughs) As, as one does as one does and uh Uh, this is why if you go to look at the uh, uh, the actual manuscript of Beowulf to to this very day you'll see all around the edges it's charred this is why it's charred they
0: they don't make librarians the way they used to
1: no indeed no No. indeed genuinely heroic and not to mention now uh, fire scarred men (laughs) in any event the manuscript shows signs of not having been well respected for a long time Uh, not only is it obviously charred around the edges uh, it also has been used as a cutting board on at least three occasions. One time we know it was used to cut cheese uh, and the other two times it was used to cut bread and yeah. the striations are still, you can see them across the actual manuscript itself. Other times people thought to themselves, oh, I have this wonderful piece of furniture. I don't want to get a beer stain on it. I will use this book as a <laughs> coaster." So you've got two uh, mug rings uh, from ale uh, on the, on the beowulf manuscript as well. i'm
0: glad they were ale at least
1: yes uh, there's something to that at least
0: although mead mead might have been appropriate given the context but
1: yeah. yeah but i'm thinking the later audiences weren't quite so posh as mead uh, yeah, that's true yeah
0: but in terms of reception bill i, I can't recall any reference to beowulf in my readings I'm, I'm not i'm not the medievalist that you are but even the renaissance was, was it a text that was known
1: it was known but it was known in specialist circles um
0: i i mean even by liter i mean by other poets r- references and so forth I,
1: not in not any way i'm talking about scholars
0: really... now i'm talking about it was it in the literary tradition to it have it influence on other authors and i i'm struggling to think of any influence
1: you would struggle uh no um you know the the, the yeah. ben johnson's the john Duns, the shakespeare's the uh alexander popes they they Nothing, right They knew something of it, but they knew it as basically as a a linguistic and literary curiosity. Right. Uh, The text, the medieval text that actually exerts a fair bit of influence on the medieval uh, or sorry, on the Renaissance imagination is probably Chaucer. Chaucer Chaucer was one of the first uh, authors who was um, treated by the printing press later on. Mm. and uh this contributed very significantly to the fame of chaucer and then of course spencer came along and celebrated things uh, sort of in that vein and passed certain yeah. sort of tendencies on yeah um i'll come back i'll talk about that in just a minute i should talk very briefly about the language again and then i'll leave that behind there are four usual phases we talk about with the english language and old english which i just read to you is the earliest form of the language and uh, i tell people you know when they say that's not english i, I will tell them look insofar far as we're getting closer and closer to the roots the genuine authentic roots of english this is more english than what you're speaking today in some mm. senses mm. uh, it's less quote unquote corrupted but old english gets wiped out almost at a stroke in 1066 with the battle of hastings when the normans conquered england they Wiped out the anglo-saxon hierarchy at the level of government at the level of military at the level of church at the level of Intellectual endeavor at the level of everything everybody was out and they replaced all those people with a matrix of normans The normans themselves as perhaps you already know are descended from the Vikings uh, but have been naturalized with uh, Frankish that is to say French culture. So you see the rise of anglo- Norman and this is what gets preserved in texts up until about 1300 uh, everywhere you go and it's kind of a, a, a dialect a often mocked dialect uh, of uh, French and then we see the rise of middle English because old English never went away it just went yeah. underground.
0: so you, it was the it was the the commoners who spoke English and the aristocrats that spoke this anglo yes this, so Norse.
1: yeah 80 90 percent of people in England were still speaking Old English after the conquest. In time, as happens again and again, uh, the Normans themselves were assimilated into this culture. They became naturalized into it. And so Anglo Norman fades away and we see the rise of this thing called Middle English. And this is the language of Chaucer. Hmm. And the dates for when Middle English morphs into Shakespearean English, which is the third phase uh are debatable i usually place it somewhere around 1450 or so 1475 i guess at the very latest and you see the great vowel shift you and i will talk about that in later episodes and we move into shakespearean uh english which is obviously the language of shakespeare that the D, thousand thine and all that stuff which so many people erroneously think is old english it's emphatically not it's two stages removed and then finally around 1660 most linguists agree that's where we move into modern English as we speak it today as we uh, the, the syntax the pronunciation and all these sorts of things so those are your four phases those are the dates roughly when it comes to English hmm. uh but let's back up a, a step here or two about it being respected or disrespected you want you, you wanted to say something about um has well, we talked to, about genre? Even, yeah, in terms of genre, in terms of its neglect, but uh, as a genuinely literary text and all this stuff.
0: Well, I mean, I I, I do actually teach it to my first year undergrads. Um, and, and it's not even in an, many anthologies anymore. So it speaks to what you've just said. But when I do so, I tend to present it as an epic. And we've just done a series of epics. We've looked at the Iliad, the Odyssey, the Aeneid. In many ways, this is epic and it's, Uh, scope but it doesn't bear some of the marks of the epic that i would recognize as conventions of the epic and it it doesn't even acknowledge the the authors in a way that certainly the secondary epic as we just spoke of did in reference to homer um and and the man who brought almost single-handedly and you'll you'll say more about this this text to the not just the attention, but to the estimation of the English-speaking world, J.R.R. Tolkien, he argues that this is a heroic, elegiac poem, not an epic. Since he's the expert on it, uh, and he's also the one responsible for bringing it to such prominence, it's hard not to be stopped in one's tracks and says, okay, well, it's not an epic. But let's dig down on what he calls it then, a heroic, elegiac poem. My comment is, what the heck is that? (laughs) Um, because i don't recognize that as a genre of literature per se it has those features for for certain really he's saying it's northern european and not southern european Um, but does that make it not an epic
1: i think tolkien actually in probably the most important uh, work on beowulf that he wrote the critics and the monsters uh actually undermines himself to some extent Uh, tolkien is thinking out loud to some extent there it is that's a wonderful text that, uh, that pays masters massively.
0: in the critics.
1: Yeah, that's right. Uh, along with another piece here that is invaluable. This uh, was written by my uh, PhD advisor. Uh, Andy the, Orchard. Yeah, Andy Orchard who is now the Bosworth and Rawlinson chair of Anglo-Saxon over at Oxford um, which is the chair that of course Tolkien himself used to hold. It uh, yep. was yep. created largely so that they might house Tolkien at Oxford. Anyway, Tolkien mentions in The Critics and the Monsters when he's talking about the monsters themselves that the monsters of the Germanic, that is to say the English, as well as all all sort of cognates, uh, imagination are different fundamentally than the monsters we encounter in, let's say, The Odyssey or something like this.
0: We're going to talk about that next time, right?
1: Yeah, the next podcast, we're going to really focus on the monsters. Um, But he says that they, they... the terms and the description and the discussion and the treatment of the monsters in Germanic works Almost has more of a sense of an adjective than a noun. They connote monstrousness um, they, they they approach you in a certain spirit or mood and that's the most important takeaway from the monster uh, You will see with uh, the giants with the dragons with the trolls with all these monsters that you encounter They seldom give you hard concrete details. So next episode, we're going to talk about uh, Grendel's infamous raid uh, on the the Mead Hall. And what does Grendel look like? We don't know. He's got scaly sort of skin, which which iron can't bite, which is a phrase used typically of berserkers, by the way. Um, And he's got eyes of flame in the dark and that's all you see is grendel seeing you which is a creepy as hell <laughs> um i see you and uh so all you see is the monster seeing you and a bit that's like it.
0: sauron right
1: yes yes um and that's a deliberate tactic and of course yeah tolkien uses that in the lord of the rings to great effect he never never gives you a hard form of the most terrifying things in there oftentimes anyway we're going to come back and talk about this also around the dragon and whatnot. But the same holds for genre, as you were saying. The Germanic mind is much less inclined to categorize analytically what it's doing in terms of its literature. Um, So if you said, is this the genre of epic or is this an elegy or is this, what is this? Uh, Your Anglo-Saxon poet, known as a shop or a shaper, uh would very likely just shrug and say look is it good or is it bad i mean why do you need to step back and analyze it i mean engage with the text itself and stop talking about categories uh which is foreign to my mind sadly well it's
0: foreign to the greek mind it's foreign to the medieval mind really that which is ironic since we're talking about medievals but the medieval mind they are categorizers that's what they do
1: yeah When we get to later, I mean, later works. Uh, This is discussed uh, to uh, great effect in S.C.S. Lewis's Tolkien's Friends, uh, Discarded Image. One of the most valuable reads. It's a short read. You don't have much time, and you really want to get a little more cultured, uh, especially in the Western tradition. It's a short, accessible read. Pick it up and read. It's like De Poetica. It's short. It's accessible. It's just a must read. So there's two texts that should be immediately on your reading list. Anyway, so the calling it a heroic elegy. I mean, you can say anachronistically, you can turn on your heel and say, look, there are features here that bear striking similarities to the epics, which are traditionally accepted that we've been discussing. You've got, uh, you've got a hero figure at the center. Uh, you've got grand, sublime, huge action. Uh, its treatment of that action bears certain similarities. You, you, it's the big stuff, you don't get much minutia or stuff like this. Chaucer, famously, you know, in his Canterbury Tales, he has a little detail that I like where, uh, I think it's the Miller who's about to tell his tale, or maybe it's the Reeve, it doesn't really matter. And he, he's gonna sit down to tell the tale. And Chaucer mentions in his poem that he shoes this black cat off the bench as, the, uh, as the, the teller of the tale sits down. It's a detail you'll never get in Beowulf. It's way too minute. It's, it's all about setting the mood and what have you for Chaucer. The mood is totally different in Beowulf. So the treatment is big and grand and all these sorts of things. You get a hero figure at the center, as you say. Uh, a lot of people include this notion of a journey to the realm of the dead as a necessary element of what's going on here. You have that, but in very strange form in Beowulf when he swims down to the bottom of the mirror and he goes into the grotto where Grendel's mother uh, dwells. And of course, in some senses, she is dead because she is the kin of Cain and they've been wiped out. But she's still living, but she doesn't seem to know it. But she's still beneath the waves that killed her kin. She has her dead son with her, right? She has her dead son with her. And what is she killed by? She's killed by this sword, which has in ekphratic detail on the Hilton, and we'll talk about this more next podcast, the uh, the flood narrative on it. So the sword is the flood, and the flood ultimately does kill her, but in in metaphorical sword form. But it is nevertheless the realm of the dead to which Beowulf goes and where he barely manages to return and not mm. by his own powers either. No. Which, well, we'll talk about that stage by stage. So that
0: stage. seems rather epic in many ways, right? So, yeah,
1: a... I mean, we could go on listing these sorts of things, but yeah, there's a lot of the epic in here. Mm. On the other hand, is it different? Is it elegic? There's another anachronistic term. They wouldn't know what you're talking about if you mentioned No, that.
0: no, no. That's a Greek term again.
1: Yes, exactly. Elegic poetry, um, which is a form of, uh, one of the three forms of lyric poetry that uh, the Greeks practiced. Anyway, um, and based on the actual uh, metrical structure of the poem not its content or mood which is how we talk about it later on in english when we get into the 18th century uh is there something deep and mournful which is distinctive about anglo-saxon poetry yes for the most part there is it is a typically and i'm generalizing here it is a sad introspective majestic kind of a poetry uh, the language itself, Tolkien famously asserted, and I agree wholeheartedly with him, the, 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 the very spirit of the language itself, grammatically, uh, auditorially, in uh, all these sorts of things, poetically, uh, is slow and sonorous and mournful and, I mean, uh, it's we start off Paideia today with this kind of deep cello that you know runs through things that that kind of catches some of it It really does. Yes And if you yes. listen to old Norse Which is a very closely related language that could actually probably have spoken to one another when the Vikings first invaded the anglo-saxon I- Island they would have had some sense of what the other guy was saying because germanic languages back then were very close but nevertheless uh, the point is made again by tolkien that the spirit of old norse Uh, is very different. He says, you know, you got the slow, majestic old English language, and on the other hand, old Norse, he said, when it tries to communicate its meaning, it's like a fist to the eye, I think, is what Tolkien said. It just hits you with what it means to say, and its brilliance is in its directness. There's an actual artistry to shocking directness, and old Norse poetry and literature does that extremely well. I'm trying to think of a line of the
0: i beg your pardon
1: (laughs) (laughs) but you can hear immediately that's a different kind of a language Uh, the translation of that being uh, when you see evil speak you there straight out at that evil and never give the devil a peace treaty that's what i just said anyway very very different language than old english so is there anachronistically something of the elegiac about old english yeah Tolkien's not wrong. I'm not saying Tolkien is wrong.
0: So how, is that because of the cultural context that influences the Beowulf poem? Like, What, what are your thoughts here?
1: Uh, well, this is one of the curious things about Beowulf. Beowulf is told, composed, I should say, by a Christian author looking back. They are very much a people who look back in sadness, fondness, respect, reverence, And there is a great tradition, not even a a literary or poetic tradition. There's a great tradition of culture there. And the poet is very clearly at pains to see this go as time moves on and Christianity comes in. And so uh, some people have argued that he's trying to assimilate that pagan culture into his Christian worldview. Um, Some people argue that it's a fond goodbye or something like this. Uh, but what we need to remember here is that if when it comes to the conversion of the Anglo-Saxon to Christianity, and we don't have time for or scope for this in this podcast. There is no example of Christian conversion, which is more committed to assimilating rather than replacing the culture it encounters. And it does this everywhere. The Probably the best uh, The text to read on this is in Bede's uh, History of the English Church and People, and he uh, records famously there what is known as the Labellus Responsiosum, uh, the Book of Questions, where there are ten questions that the arch-converter of the Anglo-Saxons, Augustine of Canterbury, to be confused with Augustine of Hippo, sends to Pope Gregory the Great in Rome, uh, somewhere around a little after 597. And he asks uh, the Pope uh, a number of questions, many of which are stupid questions about what he's to do with these pagan Anglo-Saxons. And he says, what do I do with their holidays and what do I do with their temples? Do I burn them down and do I eradicate them? And Gregor is like, no, are you an idiot? I, I, I sent you to do a good job of this here and you need to turn your brain on. So they're used to worshiping at these temples. So don't tear them down. Take all the idols and stuff out of them. Consecrate them to God's purpose and then turn them into churches. And this is an example already that's being used from the the Mediterranean world, of course. They they convert many temples uh, to pagan gods into churches. And then they usually dedicate that church to a uh, a saint of some kind who has a lot of similarities to the god who was worshipped there before. So oftentimes Church of St. Michael is a common one in the northern world. St. Michael goes out to fight the dragon at the end and so does thor at the ragnarök he goes out to fight the middle earth serpent the mythians ormer um so this is an immediate crossover so oftentimes really old churches in england that are dedicated to saint michael had been uh, on those grounds formerly had been a temple to the god thor or donner or however you want to know him fascinating Yes, and they do the same thing with holidays. Do I get rid of their holidays? No, let's don't do that. They're used to celebrating, you know, their their rights and what have you at this time. Just take them and convert them. Take them and convert them. Take them and convert them. So, Yule, you know, what we now call Christmas, says take that and convert that to you know the the birth of Christ and uh, all the things that go along with that. Uh, Easter, which is a celebration to the goddess Eostra, usually involving human sacrifice, according to Tacitus. He says, turn that into notions of art, our, our Easter, our modern notions of Easter and Christ's sacrifice on the cross, convert that. So they convert the language, they convert the <clears throat> holidays, they convert the churches, and they convert the literature as well. And so we see this process of careful, detailed, extremely intelligent conversion of a pagan poetic tradition in Beowulf to a Christian tradition, but with a lot of mournful, cautious treatment on the part of the anonymous poet
0: that's just so fascinating because when you think of conversion often in christian terms in terms of a personal transformation it is the the language is out of a new birth right so there's nothing of the old left there is a new creature right Mm -hmm. when you're come to faith in christ that's what happens there's a new birth that's taking place Whereas the conversion of a culture isn't quite the same thing. Uh, it is not that the old is passed away; it's that the old is being transformed and reshaped. And again, I think we referred to this when we talked about de doctrina Christiana, Augustine's uh, analogy for plundering the Egyptians and using their gold and their good things and removing their connections with idolatry and demonic worship, which he, as he called it, and then but utilizing it for Proper worship, so that's the difference in terms, and and so that's a helpful distinction here as well, when we're talking about conversion. There's a distinction between a personal conversion and a cultural conversion, right? Yeah. And in a cultural conversion, you seek to preserve what was uh, good and integral about the culture, whereas exactly. in a personal conversion, you really are a new creature, and that so that's that is rather different.
1: Yeah, it's uh, because the Anglo-Saxons were so keen on this notion of conversion of what had gone before. We have a linguistic survival of all things, old English, especially with the language and the literature, which is not matched by any other culture in Northwestern Europe. This is the great stop. If you want to see what was before, this is where you go. Uh, so we have radically so what- more literature. The, the, the Germans have almost no survival of their prior literature prior to their conversion which by the way happened at the behest of anglo-saxon missionaries
0: okay so the other oh, so as a non-specialist here bill i'm I'm going to just talk about a few things that always occur to me and maybe you can respond to it so comparing to the greco-roman epics there seems to be different features of the characters here so in the iliad the odyssey there are uh there's a hierarchy there are princes and so forth and it's not that uh, they don't prize loyalty because they do but it seems far more prominent here in the in this work loyalty seems to be almost all say something about that am i wrong in that
1: no you're not wrong it tacitus actually the roman historian writing uh right around the uh life of christ actually talks in two uh, two different sources about the qualities of the Germanic barbarians amongst whom we have to uh, list the Anglo-Saxons. And he says, you know, we've got our set of, of, uh, virtues. We've got the four virtues that we have over here as Romans. He says, but uh, the Germanic people have their own set, which kind of crosses over into ours. Uh, they value courage, but it's the courage of a very different species than we've encountered in uh, Greek and Roman Epic. And we're going to talk about that later. Uh, they value generosity. But a generosity which is not merely material. There's a generosity of spirit, he says, about these people that you will not find amongst uh, people in the Roman Empire. Uh, now, remember here, he's writing these, uh, these texts, uh, Germania uh, and I think it's Agricola as well, uh, as very much as reformatory historical texts to chastise the Roman people. So he might be characterizing the Germanic barbarians in positive ways in order to shame the Romans. I don't know.
0: Yeah, he's over egging the pudding. Yeah, the it, exactly. Good.
1: Exactly. And then the third thing he talks about is loyalty. He says, they are loyal as we are not. We feel the obligation of loyalty as Romans as kind of an external public imposed upon virtue that you, there's a code and you need to adhere to it whereas amongst the germanic barbarians that loyalty is much more organic um, and it arises from a deep love for the leader and it's reciprocal
0: the romans appeal to patriotism the germans feel it and they it's a genuine love for their leader
1: yeah you'll see this in uh, at numerous points in beowulf beowulf's relation with hugh yalak and, and so on and so forth and hrothgar's relationship with his people you follow your leader because you admire him as a person and you have a deep affection for this person that's why you will fight to the death with this person you see this we discuss this with the praetorian guard uh and how they were uh, these germanic barbarians were converted to roman military sort of standards uh dressed up in roman uniforms with roman weapons but the bottom line is they, they didn't speak latin for the most part and they were still operating according to these codes of loyalty, and there this is loyalty to the death and numerous professors in various fields, sociology anthropology uh medievalists, and what have you uh, with their addiction to deconstructing, have tried to deconstruct these codes of loyalty as an anachronistic construct or a purely literary construct or what have you uh, but historical details seem to reinforce rather than uh, dispersed. Undermine, yeah. Yeah, so we see the Battle of Malden, where uh, Birchnoth is surrounded by, I mean, some of his Thanes flee to their lifelong infamy, but he's got a core of people around him who, who after, after Birchnoth falls in battle, they, his, his retainers, uh, out of loyalty, rather than run, they die around him. There's a ring of his dead followers around him. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the Battle of Hastings, Harold Godwinson He's struck down Um, and he's got a large set of retainers, the inner men. You usually have a guard if you're uh, in Germanic culture of retainers around you. Yeah. And that's what we refer to them as, by the way. Um, And we know that they died in large numbers around them, even when they had the opportunity to flee. They could have run. They did not and we think hundreds of them died around. so that's
0: very interesting and in some ways it strikes me it seems more amenable at least in terms of a temperament and in terms of a personal relation that suits a christian view of what a christian ought to be in some ways as opposed to the individualistic factionalistic very political uh, greek world and and even to some degree the roman world i mean the roman world is about duty but Duty there almost seems to be again uh, uh, the stoic temperament of a virtue that you put on rather than you actually feel. Whereas the Germanic really does have a more, as you say, an organic um, inclination there.
1: Yeah, we, we draw a very clear line between the early middle ages, or the dark ages, if you like, and the high middle ages, based usually around 1066, <laughs> um, for a number of reasons. But this is one of the reasons we see the rise of feudalism. Uh, in the High Middle Ages, and we'll talk about that in later podcasts as well. Uh, Feudalism is your pledging of your fealty to a lord, whether he's a duke or a baron or a marquis or whatever it is, doesn't matter. And again, it is almost antithetical to this notion of loyalty that we're discussing here. It is something that is imposed extraneously. There is a code. Everyone knows the code. Whether you feel it or not, you are obligated to your lord it's a much more one-way relationship. It's you giving to the Lord instead of two ways, which it is very much here. And so we go back to that model you're talking about. It's it's a litigious model. It's not a felt model. Uh, in some ways, some people have referred to it as a very artificial model of loyalty and obligation, obligé. And so we go back to that. And some people would argue that that is uh, the lesser of two loyalties uh, in terms of is, a model.
0: Is, is that why we see marks of, you know, the vengeance and all of that sort of? Stuff in this, I mean.
1: yeah. Vengeance is—I mean, you you can't understand early Germanic culture, uh, whether it's Anglo-Saxon or Viking or what have you, without understanding the vengeance dynamic. Uh, the uh, the 20th century poet W. H. Auden talks about it as the world's only successful perpetual motion machine. <laughs> vengeance is uh, vengeance. He was fascinated with Icelandic literature, uh, which is to say Viking literature. Anyway, the 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 idea is that you have two different models of European vengeance codes uh the first is what we typically refer to as the the southern code uh, which is the vendetta the vendetta is a code of revenge which arises out of a a sort of a savage passion you you have to hate your victim he has done something she has done something to you or your family or your people or something so that's
0: that's an italian word this is mafia this is italian that's
1: right Right. this is the realm of the stiletto through the eye and all that Right, so um, this is,
0: this is uh, what we know from Hollywood films, basically. Correct. That's the vendetta.
1: Yeah, so these, it, it arises from the passions, and you kill in a sense of uh, hate uh, and sadism at, uh, at times, and it, it's, it's, the passions have to really be in place for this to work. Um, I think of uh, the opera, the light opera, uh, Carmina Um yeah. You catch a lot of the spirit of what's going on there with the vendetta. On the other hand, the Germanic code is in many ways, the opposite. It is a code of vengeance, which is predicated upon oftentimes bleak and even mournful obligation. So we see in many of the tales, um, even in Old English, but also in, in Old Norse, uh, where somebody, your kin group is, is largely what your loyalties center on. Your, your lord, usually a warlord or cuning, and your kin group and hopefully these two things are bound up together and that your kin group and your other obligations to your lord don't conflict but rather align but oftentimes they do not align a lot of times people have to take vengeance so somebody in your kin group or somebody amongst your your people your lord's group your retainers uh is harmed insulted or killed and whether you like it or not you have to avenge them and the person upon whom you have to may have to avenge uh this death or this wrong is oftentimes somebody you may actually like quite a bit but it doesn't matter you have to kill him uh and there's another scene that goes along with this this breach of loyalty if you if you break your loyalty and don't exert vengeance or try to exert vengeance for a wrong like this in germanic society you are forever broken you are you can no longer function as a person as, as a member of that society we encounter this with uh, other poems which are even more elegic in spirit uh, the wanderer for instance gets into this and how his lord and all his fellows fell at this horrible battle somehow he survived and he can't impose vengeance and now he wanders adrift in the world he's a broken man uh yeah, if you betray-
0: Talk, it, tolkien's uh the realm of the dead there where the, the oath breakers had not um done their duty and therefore they're cursed and they're forever tormented although they be dead until such time as they shall fulfill their own that sort of same sense then just yeah
1: it's really difficult to overemphasize how broken you are if you break loyalty and fail to avenge a wrong or a death you're just done um and this may explain one of the reasons why you find all these rings of dead loyal retainers around lords in anglo-saxon history and anglo-saxon literature
0: so this is honor culture then very strongly and very much leans almost towards the east as well again you get this in the samurai and and other such uh, martial martial yeah the
1: codes of bushido and things like that but yeah. i mean you have, there's a really interesting account i'm not going to go into its details in the anglo-saxon chronicles where the chronicler actually thinks a Certain cycle of vengeance so striking that he records it in detail Which usually isn't done in the anglo-saxon chronicle It's a chronicle. So therefore the entries are very brief the, in this year These things happened and then they move on But here he gives you the full story of this code of loyalty holds to all levels of society uh, They don't have aristocratic society the way we think of it in later times during the high middle ages the nobility of your blood does matter but it doesn't transfer as a necessity so there are times when certain individuals come to power, and everyone says this person is a this person who is the son of King so and so is a bit of a dud. We're going to pass him over and go with somebody much more promising who's actually got a, a track record in the field. And you know you're you're finished. Uh, so this happens all the time. It's very much a meritocracy. This is a ferocious meritocracy. This this ruling sort of dynamic. Uh, likewise, and we've been talking about loyalty. And one of the things I should also point out here is that if your Lord and his people are not in a position of immediate duress, and he's not particularly promising, it was not uncommon for a retainer to say, you know what, nothing's happening here. I'm going to head out and pledge my loyalty to another guy who's doing a lot more stuff. There's much more chance of me gaining glory with that guy over there than with you here. And you could do that as long as you you weren't abandoning your Lord in the lurch. That's not done. Whereas in the high Middle Ages, that's unthinkable. I mean, you have to even yeah. ask permission to leave the court, never mind leave the uh, the, the service of your Lord. It's not done. Yeah. Whereas it is done here continuously uh, in this culture.
0: Well, I find, look, I find this really interesting, but we've actually uh, talked about this a, a great deal, and we've not even touched on some of the things we wanted to talk about, but the, the use of the language and the features of the language, and we also have not yet talked about the thing that I really wanted to get to talk about, namely the monsters. Um, but perhaps we'd be better off leaving that to the next episode. At any rate, I'm Dr. Scott Masson uh, with Dr. Bill Friesen here, and this is Pucket Today. And uh, thank you much. We'll see you next time. So Take care.